Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Turn to the book of Esther, chapter 8. We have been working our way chapter by chapter through the book of Esther. Now, I have to tell you a quick, sad story. Micah contacted me this afternoon and said that our friend who is in Florida, who was sitting right here uh, several months ago, a Jewish convert who listens online, uh, he had sent us through Amazon, a box of Purim noisemakers. And so we were going to have noisemakers tonight, but unfortunately, Amazon sent it to the post office box. And uh, when I went there today, it had yet to be processed through the actual post office to our post office box. So I don't have the noisemakers so that you could... Pardon me? Whatever. Whatever will we do without noisemakers? But really, Haman's only going to come up a time or two tonight. It would have been an opportunity, though. There it is. That's what I'm looking for. It would have only come up a time or two tonight, but next week we will begin, if uh, everything goes according to plan, we will begin the book of Ezra. We'll do Ezra and Nehemiah because historically that's where we're at in our timeline. So, tonight we're going to finish the book of Esther. Now, the last couple of chapters of the book of Esther are largely narrative, except that I just want you to keep seeing the absolute providence of God, the sovereignty of God behind the events that are occurring. Because so far in this book, we have seen that Esther, though a Jewish woman, was nevertheless among the beautiful virgins in the kingdom that was ruled over by Ahasuerus. And out of this massive area, all the women were gathered to the king, and he chose Esther, just providence, that he would happen to choose Esther, who, according to her cousin Mordecai, who was raising her, he said, don't tell the king what your actual heritage is. Don't tell him you're a Jew. So she kept that a secret. And then Haman, who was third in the kingdom, Haman, who was third in the kingdom, He then decided that he needed to kill all the Jews because of how much he hated Mordecai. Why? Because Mordecai did not genuflect in front of him, did not do obeisance to him, because Mordecai, like any thoroughgoing Jew, believed that there is one God in him alone. That's who you worship. So he would not worship at uh, Haman's behest. And so... So upset was this Haman that he built a scaffold 50 cubits high, which is just ridiculous, because all you really need to hang a man on is something about a foot taller than that man is, and that'll be enough for him to be dead. But 50 cubits high to hang Mordecai on, just to teach Mordecai a lesson. Well, meanwhile, he also convinced the king that he ought to have the authority, the power to eradicate that people group because that people group were represented by this Mordecai who did not bow to Haman, who felt himself to be so important in the kingdom 
that he said to the king, you've got this people and they are in your kingdom and they don't follow the laws of the Medes and the Persians and they don't follow the rules of the king and therefore I suggest we just wipe them all out. And so the king agreed and gave him the signet ring and gave him the ability to create a law so that all of the Jews that were in the kingdom were all going to be destroyed. But they were going to be destroyed on a certain day. And so to determine the day that it was going to happen, they cast lots. The Middle Eastern word for lots is the word per, P-U-R in English letters. And that is the foundation of the Feast of Purim. That is the foundation of the feast that to this day the Jews still celebrate in order to celebrate the demise of Haman and the fact that the Jews were ultimately saved. And the way that that happened was that Mordecai heard a plot against the king and went to Esther and said, you need to tell the king that there's a plot against him. She went in and told the king Save the king's life, they examined and found out that it was true, and so they killed the malefactors, and then the king was saved alive. And then nothing was ever done for Mordecai as a result of his saving the king's life. And so then Esther starts realizing that she may have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. She starts asking the king for a request. And in the midst of asking for that request, the king keeps saying, I'll give you anything. I'll give you half the kingdom. That's how enamored he was with her. I'll give you anything. What do you want? And her request was, why don't you and Haman come to a feast? I'm going to cook a meal and come to a feast and drink wine and just come do that. And so that made Haman think, man, I am really important. It's only the king and I that are invited to the feast that this queen is making. While they were at the feast, he finally said, okay, what's your request? She said that you come tomorrow and we do it again and more wine and more food. So the next day, the king and Haman come into the feast that she has made. And at that feast, she says to him, give me my request. Give me my own life. And the king wonders what that's about. And she explains that all of the Jews in the kingdom are set to be killed. And they are set to be killed on a particular day, the last day of the month, the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the month, according to the purr that had been thrown by Haman. That was the day that everybody who hated the Jews in the whole kingdom could kill all their Jewish neighbors, take all their stuff, plunder them, wipe them out completely, kill, destroy. And the king says, who, who would do such a thing? And she says, Haman, who's sitting right there at her feast. And so she begs for her life. Of course, the king loves her so much that he would have given her half the kingdom. And so Haman realizes he's in terrible trouble. The king's really upset. He walks outside into his garden to kind of cool down for a minute. Haman starts begging her for his life and falls on the couch she's laying on just as the king comes back. And the king comes in and says, would he even molest my wife in my own house while I'm here? And the next thing you read is that immediately guards covered his face, put a sack over his head, and he was hauled away. And then one of the guards that was working there in the king's palace 
said to the king, you know, this same Haman has built a scaffold 50 cubits high. Why not hang him on it? And the king approves of that plan. And that's where we left off last week. Okay, I know I just went through the whole book in 70 league boots, but that catches you up to where we are because it doesn't end at the hanging of Haman, who we were happy to see hung. (laughs) So the book of Esther does not end at And then Haman was killed, the end. Now, Esther is going to go to the king again and say, there's still this decree that has been sent out in your name that is still circulating in your kingdom that is going to allow that on the last month of the year, on the 13th day, that all the Jews are going to be killed and destroyed and plundered. What are you going to do about that? So what I've been emphasizing through these weeks, after we've been looking at the book of Esther, is I keep emphasizing, just look at the sovereign providence of God that brought all these events about, which is why I recounted it tonight, so that you could see the hand of God providentially moving kingdoms and nations and peoples in order to accomplish the very thing that he has testified is always going to happen, that he has prophesied is going to happen time and time again. God has promised that he's going to be faithful to Israel despite themselves. And here he is being faithful to Israel. In fact, the rule is going to be changed to now the Jews can plunder and kill their enemies. And the Jews ultimately do kill their enemies and refuse the plunder because they don't want to profit off the death of other people who wanted to profit off their death. That, I think, is a fair summation of where we're at in Esther chapter 8. And we're going to try to finish the book tonight, but it is mostly narrative, so I'm just going to kind of read the next couple of chapters, and we will see, once again, the providence of God in protecting the people he promised to protect. That's the end of the introduction. Chapter 8, starting at verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman. And he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So all of a sudden, Mordecai goes from sitting in the gate to having a palace, to having servants, to sitting and ruling over the house that once upon a time Haman had ruled over. Then Esther spoke again to the king and fell at his feet and wept and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite. Really nothing? Okay, fine. You were all stunned by Agagite. Is that what happened? And his plot, which he devised against the Jews. And the king extended the golden scepter. Remember the importance of the golden scepter? When Mordecai came to Esther and said, you need to go beg the king for the life of the Jews. She said, it is the rule of the Medes and the Persians. It's an absolute law of the Medes and the Persians that if you come into the king's presence without being invited, 
There's only one rule, death. If I go in and I'm not invited in, I'm dead. And he says to her, who knows, but that you've come into the kingdom for just such a time as this. She says, okay, I'm going to go ask the king. And if I die, I die. So when she went in before the king, he held out the golden scepter, which was a sign of his acceptance of her being there. She came forward and touched that scepter. So it's an indication of the king's acceptance. So the king extended the golden scepter again to Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. Then she said, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters that were devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which shall befall my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him... They have hanged on the gallows because he had stretched out his hand against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. So the king's scribes were called at that time. In the third month, that is, in the month Sivan, the reason this is important is that Haman devised his plan in the first month of the year. And then when he cast the lots, it came out the 12th month of the year. So there was a time frame during which all of this could occur before the Jews were killed. So now we know it's the third month of the year, so two months have passed, and on the 23rd day, it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews and the satraps and the governors and the princes and the provinces, which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to every province according to its script, that means according to its writing, and to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews, according to their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of a king Ahasuerus, and he sealed it with the king's signet ring. And he sent letters by couriers on horses, riding on steeds that were sired by the royal stud. In other words, the fastest horses in the kingdom. In them the king granted the Jews, who were in each and every city, the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month of Adar. So on that day, the original decree said, kill all the Jews. Now the new decree says, if you're trying to kill the Jews, they're going to kill you. 
So it's a complete reversal of fortune for the Jews who are living under the Medo-Persian rule. Verse 13 says, a copy of the edict to be issued as law in each and every province was published to all the people so that the Jews should be ready for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers, hastened and impelled by the king's command, went out riding on their royal steeds, and they brought the decree that was given out of Susa, that's the capital, or Shushan, and it was sent out of Susa, the capital. And then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. And in each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews and a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews for the dread of the Jews had fallen on all of them. Okay, that's chapter 8. So far, then, what we've seen is by the providential hand of God, everything that was happening in the capital has been turned upside down. It went from being the destruction of the Jews to being in the favor of the Jews. It went from Mordecai being a poor man to becoming a man who walked around in royal robes. And as the authority and the power of the king's signet ring, he becomes a man who was making laws for all of Medo-Persia. And Esther, who was just an orphaned girl who was being raised by her cousin, has become the queen of the Medo-Persian Empire. And all of that happened because God was faithful to the fact that he said he was going to protect his people. Has God made you any promises? Can you find any promise anywhere in the Bible that applies to you? Yes. Yeah, of course. I saw your face light up, even though you didn't speak. Yeah, we have promises, unerring promises, promises of eternal life, promises of redemption, promises of salvation and justification, promises of our sinfulness being placed on Christ and taken completely out of the way, promises that in Christ, even the law that would condemn us has been nailed to his cross and taken out of the way. Promises so good that Paul would write, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Because it is God who justifies those people. It is Christ who has died, yea, that is raised again for those people. We have all these magnificent promises. And here you have an example of God keeping his faithful word, keeping his faithful promises to the people he promised them to, despite the fact that those people have been scattered out of their own country and are in bondage in the Babylonian captivity and the Medo-Persian captivity because they're so bad. And yet God is faithful to them. Now, I'm willing to bet that if I look around this room, I could find somebody who fits the category of so bad. Okay, <laughs> there was a volunteer right there. And yet what we see consistently throughout the Bible, and here again, 
is that God is faithful to his people despite his people. Despite the fact that we fail him, despite the fact that we are sinners naturally in our flesh, that's what we've been studying in men's group out of the book of Romans, that there is a law, according to Paul, a law that in my members, in my flesh, when I would do good, sin is present with me. And the thing I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. And if you know yourself well at all, that is also what you would declare about yourself. That though I want to please God, though I want to do the good, though I want to live a holy life all the time, despite all that, I have this sinful proclivity in my flesh that causes me to do the rebellious things I don't really wish to do. Which causes Paul to end up saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And chapter 8 starts... There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's a promise. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Do you think God's going to perform that promise? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because what we see consistently, time and time again, is God being faithful to Israel despite Israel. That's really good news if he's going to be faithful to you despite you. Because I guarantee you, you're going to mess it up. And you're going to mess it up repeatedly. And you're probably going to mess it up before you leave this building tonight. Okay, that's the application. Let's keep reading. We're going to start reading about the Feast of Purim being instituted. This year it's passed because the Jews live on a lunar calendar and we live on a solar calendar. This is part of the reason that Easter changes its date every year because of the difference between the Jewish calendar and the Anglican Roman calendar. So Purim this year was in February. This coming year, 2019, it'll be March 20th because it moves each year. But on those two days, the Jews gather and read the book of Esther. Starting at verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, Then in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over the Jews, it was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought to harm them. And no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. I also see God's providence in that. That God had put, I would think, a providential dread on all of the people not only because the king had changed the command to allow the Jews to kill anybody who was their enemy. But the rumor had begun that on this day the Jews are coming to get us. And there was a genuine fear happening, a genuine dread that was happening. So verse 2, the Jews assembled themselves in the cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. 
even all the princes of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. Thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. And in Susa, the capital, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and Parashandatha, and Dalphon, and Aspatha, Poratha, Adelia, Aradatha, oh, I knew I wouldn't get through all of them, Parmashta, Arasai, Aradai, and Vezatha. Whew! Thank you. Those are the ten sons of Haman. That's why they have these Persian names. They are the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, and the Jews' enemy. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. They only wanted to kill their enemies. They weren't interested in getting rich off the destruction of other people. Verse 11 says, On that day the number of those who were killed in Susa, the capital, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and the ten sons of Haman in Susa, the capital, what then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. And what is your further request? And it shall be done. Then said Esther, if it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that it should be done and an edict was issued in Susa and Haman's ten sons were hanged. And the Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies and kill 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. This was done on the 13th day of the month Adar, and on the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and the 14th of the month, and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. As a result to this very day, if you go to the Feast of Purim, in a Jewish temple, it will happen on the 14th and the 15th day. It's a two-day feast in order to include both the days of joy that were happening around the kingdom and the day of feasting and joy that happened in Susa. Therefore, the kings of the rural areas who live in the rural towns make the 14th day of the month of Adar a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. 
Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month of Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually. Because on those days, the Jews rid themselves of their enemies. And it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into holiday that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Thus, the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the adversary of the Jews, you may boo, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast lots He had cast Pur, and then the author of the book tells us that is a lot. The lot was cast to disturb them and to destroy them. The casting of lots, and this is important to remember, the casting of lots, according to what Solomon wrote in the Proverbs, even the casting of lots is completely in the hand of God, and it's demonstrated here again. The language... The King James language is uh, the lot is cast into the lap and the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. And what that means is even the tiny things, even the things that seem insignificant, even the things that we would think are, are too small for God to pay attention to, the things that Jesus mentioned like a sparrow falling out of the sky or clothing the grass, God says he does All of that. He is in the casting of lots. So that whatever the lot turns, that's what God determined to be done. According to the Bible, there is no randomness in God's universe. There's no such thing as chance. And things happen exactly according to the design that a sovereign God has planned for them. And not only is that stated in the Proverbs of Solomon, but it's demonstrated here. There was the casting of lots for the destruction of the Jews. The lots were cast in the first month, but the lot fell to the last month. That gave them sufficient time for there to be a complete turnaround within a year's time of the fortunes of the Jews and of the fortunes of their enemies who were trying to destroy them. Which means all of that, all of God's providence in protecting his people, all fell to the completely random throwing of dice. We would say, that's random. God would say, that's my plan. In other words, there's just nothing in your life. No matter how minuscule, no matter how seemingly unimportant, there's just nothing that happens in God's universe that God is not in charge of. He declares it over and over again. The last several chapters of the book of Job is just God declaring over and over again his absolute control and command of absolutely everything that happens in his universe. From the sweet influence of the Pleiades, and I dare anybody to tell me what that is, down to feeding baby lions. He says, I do all that. To naming every star by name and calling them out to put them in their place all the way down to the most minuscule of things that happen, God says, 
I do that. I do all of it. I create snow. I bring lightning out of the clouds. I do the big stuff. I do the little stuff. The volcano that we've been seeing in uh, Hawaii and a couple other volcanoes on the planet recently, that's God. God's in charge of that. In fact, it's so obviously God that insurance companies even include a phrase to get themselves off the hook so that they don't have to pay for that destruction. They call it an act of God. So in the big stuff, in the hurricanes, in the tornadoes, in the volcanoes, it's real easy for the world to look at it and say, that's God, that's big, that's big, that's God. The Bible says God's in all the little stuff too. Because if he wasn't also in control of all the little stuff, then there would be randomness in his universe, and then there's no way for him to prophesy what the future's going to be. The only way to prophesy the future is if the future is definite. And the only way to make the future definite is for a sovereign God to declare what he's going to do. He doesn't look in a big crystal ball and say, I see what's going to happen. Instead, he says, this is what I decree to happen. This is what I have decided is going to happen. And then he sets about to use his almighty power to accomplish exactly that. I used to think it was Satan until I learned better. <laughs> yeah, it's very standard for people to think when a good thing happens, that's God. That's positive. When a bad thing happens, that's Satan. As if God and Satan are on equal levels of authority. But throughout the Bible, there's not one place that you don't see God having to allow Satan to do whatever Satan does. Peter writes, the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He can't devour at will. When uh, the demoniac at the Gadarenes saw Jesus coming and worshipped, And said, what have you got to do with me? Are you going to cast me into the abyss before my time? They knew full well that it was Jesus that was going to judge them. They knew that he had the authority. And when he told them to leave the demoniac, and they wanted to take the herd of pigs, who'd they ask? Jesus. Jesus. They had to ask Jesus, can we have the pigs? And he allowed them. So... Time and time again throughout the Bible, and it it doesn't change, you always see the authority of God controlling the activity of Satan. And yet we get this traditional mindset going in our head where we start thinking that good and bad is a matter of God and Satan at war with each other as if they are equal combatants. But the Bible doesn't say anything like that. It's all a sovereign God accomplishing exactly what he intends to accomplish in the big things and in the little things. And you should be really thankful for that, by the way. And I didn't mean to get real preachy tonight about it, but hey, I'm here and I'm going to do it anyway. If God is in complete control of whatever happens in your life, and oh yeah, the Bible says he is, then when bad things happen in your life, You can take comfort, you can take confidence in the fact that a sovereign God brought this into your life and that he's going to see you through it. That's exactly what Paul writes when he says, there is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, 
who will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape so that you may bear it. So if God is absolutely sovereignly in control of whatever happens in your life, that is going to give you the comfort to endure it and get through it. So there's a tremendous amount of comfort that comes with knowing that sovereign God is in charge of everything. Because if he's not, and I've said this enough times, but I'm going to say it again, but keep driving this point home. If he is not in charge of everything, then that means that some things could happen in your life that have no purpose. And some of those things could be painful and purposeless. Some of those things would be really bad and have no redeeming value. What's the point? Why would God take me through this? But if a sovereign God who has a plan is taking every individual through the exact thing that he has planned for them, then even the pain that you go through, even the loss that you go through has purpose. And if you know it has purpose and it's God's purpose, then you have comfort in the midst of the trial. Absolutely. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Absolutely. Yes, sir. I I promise not to cough through it this time. Go ahead. Okay. I understand it from um, a saved person's standpoint. But what about the unsaved? Are you saying that God is less sovereign if somebody's not saved? No, I don't understand. Okay, well. (laughs) I don't understand the unsaved part. I understand about our part because that's supposed to edify us. And to get learned to him. Okay, uh, let, me, let me answer your question by way of example. Okay, so God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, right? We can assume that the Egyptians were not on God's side in that, correct? Okay, was he sovereign over them anyway when he brought the plagues on them? Was he sovereign over them anyway when he brought his dark cloud to stop the armies while the Israelites went through the Red Sea, then lifted the cloud, brought the armies into the Red Sea, and drowned them? Was that a sovereign move? That's God being sovereign over unsaved people. So God's sovereignty is not limited by human willingness, capacity, saved or not saved. God's absolutely sovereign regardless. And if you use that example of the Israelites and the Egyptians, then you see that God exercised that sovereignty over the unsaved, if I may use the word unsaved for the Egyptians, that he executed that sovereignty over the Egyptians for the good of his people Israel. So yes, he's acting sovereignly over the unsaved or the unelect, But he's doing that for the good of those he has chosen, who he has elected. Otherwise, they'd be able to randomly assault the ones that he has saved, just like they were trying to destroy the Jews. And God turned it all upside down because he's sovereign. Make sense? Yeah, it does. But I'm thinking the unsaved in the expect that maybe, maybe it's their punishment, but it's our edification. Yes, yes, if I understand what you're saying, yes, here's the difference in punishment, since you bring punishment up. Uh, The writer of Hebrews says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. Okay, so that means 
that God does punish, if I may use that word. God does chasten those that belong to him. But the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, no chastening at the time seems like any fun. That's not a direct quote. But then he says, look, you had earthly fathers, and they chastened you for their own good. But God chastened you for your own good. So you endure the chastening of God because it brings about the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Okay, so that's a positive chastening. But God will also chasten the unsaved for their punishment and to keep them in that condition. Remember Sunday we were just talking about Jesus talking in parables to hide truth from people? Okay, well, that is a punishment. They have ears and they don't hear. They have eyes and they don't see. And Jesus wouldn't tell them the truth. Why? Because that's a punishment against them, a chastisement against them. So the punishment, the chastisement of God is for the good of his people and for the punishment of those that he is keeping in chains of darkness. Make sense? Okay. I don't know how we got there from Esther. But I, lots, that's where we were. The casting of lots, the casting of purr. Okay. So the word purr means the casting of lots, and that's what led to this whole thing. So the Jews, we'll start at verse 23, so the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them, and Haman, go ahead and boom, it's the last time he's coming up. The son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the adversary of all the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast purr, that is the lot, to disturb them and to destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that his wicked scheme, which he devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim. The I am on the end of any Hebrew word just pluralizes it. It would be like adding an S to a word in the English language. So the days of Purim, the casting of lots after the name Pur. And because of the instructions in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they should not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. Then Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And he sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, namely words of peace and truth, to establish these days of Purim or Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them. 
And just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants with instructions for their times of fasting and their lamentations. And the command of Esther established these customs for Purim, and it was written in the book. That takes us to chapter 10, which is a whole three verses. Was there ever a more useless chapter division? (laughs) There's really no reason for there to be a chapter division right here. Three more verses and the book is over. But now I hope you see when you, if you have Jewish friends or if you happen to live near a Jewish synagogue. When I lived in North Hollywood, I lived directly across the street from a Jewish synagogue. Now, when you see them gathering at the end of winter for Purim, now you'll know what that's about. You'll understand what they're doing, and you'll understand that the command was that they would do it perpetually through all their generations to remember the way that God had providentially taken care of them, provided for them, protected them, and did not allow them to be completely destroyed. Remember the people group we're talking about here. We're talking about a people group that has been driven out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been destroyed. They've been driven out of Judah and out of all the land of Canaan. They were taken into the Babylonian captivity, and then the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon in order to add Babylon to their growing empire. So this people group, the Jews, if they had been destroyed through all the empire of the Medes and the Persians, that would have been an utter destruction of the Jews, a complete destruction of the Jews. But at the time that Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, at the time that he gave blessings to his 12 sons before he died, he took the time to say that Of the tribe of Judah, particularly, the name from which we get Jews. The Jews are the descendants of Judah. But from the tribe of Judah, that's where Messiah was going to come from. And it was going to be his right to rule. And that law-giving and the scepter would not depart from Judah until he came whose right it is to rule. The tribe of Judah. Those are the people we're talking about. Those are the Jews that were being destroyed in Ahasuerus' kingdom. Had they been destroyed, no Jesus. Had they been destroyed, no prophecy about the coming Messiah through the tribe of Judah. So, of course, God's going to protect and defend the Jews, the tribe of Judah, because that's the people group through whom your Savior came. And that is God's faithfulness not only to the Jews and not only to his promises and prophecies but his guarantee to you so I just want you to see the big picture here this is an absolutely sovereign God making sure absolutely thousands of years ago he was making sure that you're going to get to heaven that there was going to be a savior who would come to the planet and die for your depravity And that he would raise again for your justification. And none of that happens if it isn't for Esther. And that's the importance of that story and why it's included in the Jewish history books. Last three verses. Now King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the accomplishments of his authority and his strength and a full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him 
Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews, and in favor with the multitude of his kinsmen, he was one who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. And that's the end of the book of Esther. So as I said when we introduced the book of Esther a few weeks ago, we were at the end of 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. We have looked at the, at the minor prophets. We've gone through all of those books. We have looked at Ezekiel. And I said we are now at the time, at the end of the book of Chronicles, where Ezra and Nehemiah come along. And the promise that after 70 years, God is going to allow the Jews to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And that's exactly where we are in our survey of the Old Testament. So I think next week, we ought to start at Ezra and Nehemiah and continue studying how it is that God reestablished Jerusalem, reestablished Judah, and yet again how they continue to rebel against him despite his unerring faithfulness to them. And the fact that he is going to keep them together until Messiah comes. Then 70 AD, and in comes the Roman army, and in comes Titus, the Roman general, destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple again, and the Jews are scattered around the world. Has God forgotten about them? No. Has God given up on them? You can't prove that God has given up on them from the Bible. What the Bible says and what Paul keeps arguing over and over again is that God has not abandoned the people whom he foreknew but that he has been faithful to Israel. And Jesus comes on the planet and says to his 12 apostles, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And that means the 12 tribes of Israel are still going to be regathered just like God prophesied through Ezekiel. Those tribes are going to be regathered ultimately and they're going to be established and they're going to be ruled over by the 12 apostles. And if all of that has to happen, then God ain't done with the Jews. Get the point? Yes. Okay. Any questions other than the ones that have already been asked? If there's nothing else, then say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye! Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.